HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, March 25th. This is the 58th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guests are amazing journalists who I've had the pleasure of working with, and I will introduce them in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start with my PR tip. Then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to trust your gut. You know, that feeling you get inside that tells you what's right and what's wrong? When you get it, don't fight it or ignore it. Rather, trust it. Your sixth sense is telling you something, and you should listen. At some point, we've probably all gone against our gut feelings, only to wish we had followed what, was, what our insides were saying. I know I have. So follow your instincts. That's my tip today. Now, I'm really excited to have my guests here. They are Beverly Stephen and Jim Porras, both formerly of Food Arts Magazine, which unfortunately ceased publication in September 2014. Beverly joined Food Arts in 1990 as a senior editor, moved up to managing editor, and finally to executive editor in 1998, where she developed and led the execution of editorial strategy. Jim was the senior editor of Food Arts, a role he held for more than 17 years. He came to Food Arts with an insider's knowledge of the professional kitchen, having served as one of the opening cooks at Michelin-starred Pichelin in New York City after his graduation from culinary school. So welcome. Thank We're you. glad to be here. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited to have you guys here. So for, for listeners who don't know, I was an intern at Food Arts back in 1999, so... 
So according to this, Jim, you joined Food Arts around 1998? 1995 was actually there oh, for 19 okay. years. Oh, Just wow. short, about a, about a month short of 19 years. So wow. uh, it was, uh, it was uh, I, I, like Beverly, we both had a long career at the New York Daily News, and I was a sports journalist, uh-huh. and Bev worked in a different department, and then I made the transition over to the food world. And one of the reasons I wound up at Pichelin is I, and FCI, I had nothing on my resume. I had one little thing that said food. So I had really no credibility when I went out looking for food journalist jobs. It's really hard to tell people you're a food journalist when you spent 20 years doing sports with a little time out here and there for kind of hard dues and things like that. So I thought I'd get some real experience, and it kind of paid off by me going to food arts. Yeah, so were you... Did you just have an inkling you said, I want to write about food versus sports? Or uh, Well, I won't get into all the details, but uh, there, were a lot, there was a lot of uh, turn, uh, ownership turnover at the Daily News, and a lot of people lost their job, including myself, uh, in the early 90s. There was a lot of things going on. But I had always been interested in food. I'd been cooking since I'd been a little kid, and I had a lot of, you know, a lot of food in the family and friends. So food had always been a big part of my life and a big interest of mine and had occupied almost all my waking moments from the time I was about 10 years old to the time I went to food arts and I was almost reluctant to get into the food business or the food world because sometimes when you there's something that you really are interested in and this kind of occupies your time as almost a hobby or a avocation then when you start doing it professionally I was really worried about that it would get boring and I would lose interest and I wouldn't like it anymore. And just the opposite happened. The more I did it, the more I wanted to do it, and the more I wanted to keep on doing it. The cooking part and the editorial part. So there you go. There you but go. it was it was really helpful to the magazine that Jim had actually worked in a very good restaurant in the kitchen because he had that that knowledge, that insider's knowledge of what it's really like to be in a kitchen, and I think an ability to talk with the chefs that that works out very well in terms of right. well, finding sh- stories and reporting them. And- I found out the chefs were kind of like athletes, you know. They were, you know, it, 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 to say it this way, I mean, the, the chefs were kind of jockey, and it was kind of a guy's atmosphere. So I, it was kind of very easy for me to talk to chefs because it's kind of like talking to hockey players or football players or baseball <laughs> right. players. The guys. It was a guy thing. It mostly is a guy thing, although women are doing better right. than they used right. to. And we were very supportive of that, by the way. I do want to say we featured women on the cover, women chefs on the cover of Food Arts in 1992 which was a long time before everybody suddenly is paying attention to women chefs now. Well, yeah, but they still a very have long a long way ago. to go. Yeah. It's a very macho industry, and it's been uh, slower to equalize than some other industries has. Yeah, but I always found, and I, I mentioned this to you before the show, that the food arts cover always, when it, when it arrived in the mail, I was always surprised by what was on the cover, and it was you guys did amazing photography, and it was surprised in a delightful way. It was always an intriguing, different subject matter, and ahead of the curve. Uh, when looking back now, especially, how did you come up with the covers? 
Well, you know, I think um, an awful lot of the credit for that goes to Michael Batterberry, you know, mm-hmm. who was our founding editor. Because he was an artist as well. He was a painter when he was a younger man, and he had a great eye for artistic things and a great imagination. So I think that's how it started out, that we had these sort of wonderful imaginative covers. I mean, we didn't really sell on a newsstand, so we didn't have to worry about having like a movie actress or something, you know. It could or be, a brownie. Could, you could have a pig. <laughs> and it didn't have to be a brownie. You're right. It could be a pig. We had a lot of farm animals right. along the way. <laughs> and then, so let's get back. Beverly, how did you get to food arts? You Did, did you come from San Francisco? Because I know you worked there for a little bit. Well, actually, I, I did work at the San Francisco Chronicle, but I went from there to the New York Daily News, where I worked for 10 years, actually. I had a syndicated column there. I was doing some freelancing. I wrote a story for a magazine called Seven Days, which was sort of short-lived, but very popular. I don't know that one. And um, it was about 25 years ago, I guess. That might and, be why. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, you're too young to remember it. But I did a cover story on up-and-coming chefs, and the editors at Food Arts, Michael and Julie Mountner, had read it, and they liked it, and they actually called me up and asked me to come in for an interview. So, I mean, it was kind of miraculous, like Hollywood calling, you know, because I loved working. for It was perfect. It was just perfect. We had a great run. You had beyond a great run, and the thing that, to me, is also so amazing and so I was there in 99 which was a long time ago but it was basically the same team um all these years because I worked with both of you I worked with Gary um Arian and even on the advertising side you had Barbara Mathias I mean you guys were all this core group that produced this amazing magazine well, we loved what we did. I mean, everybody loved Michael and Ariane, and we loved what we did. It was a great job. I mean, we're journalists. We like being reporters. We like reporting on the subject of food. We love dealing with the people in the hospitality industries. They're always interesting to talk to. I mean, it was a perfect job. Right, right. I mean, one of the things is like, you know, earlier I said, you know, I was afraid I'd be bored and lose interest if I worked in the food world. And what I learned, especially if I got the food arts, is that every day I learned at least one thing, if not 10 things or 50 things that I didn't know the day before. So every day was a learning day. It was like amazing. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. How do you do that? Or I didn't know this or that. And it was every day. So it was, it was almost like, you know, opening up a, a new book every day. And this was because of food arts and where we worked and the people we came in contact with and the discussions we had with them and the stories we worked on, that was that was fun to learn something new every day and, you know, put it to use somehow or, you know, put it into an article or even put it to use in your own kitchen. It was, fun. It was really a lot of fun. And, you know, it was even beyond food. I mean, one of the things right. Michael always said is you have to keep up with the zeitgeist. And, you know, he knew if you wanted to know what play to go to, he could tell you. If you wanted to know what museum to go to, he could tell you. So, you know, we were supposed to keep up with everything, movies, theater, art. (laughs) There were many Michael Batterberry stories, but one day I was sitting at my desk, and for some reason, uh, the the actress Ava Gardner came, (laughs) popped into my head. And I was saying, God, she was really beautiful. She was fantastic. So I walked into Beverly's 
office. I said, you know, I just had this idea about Ava Gardner. I mean, she was gorgeous. Do you remember Ava Gardner? She was an actress in the 40s and 50s and at the end of the early 60s. And Michael overheard our conversation, and he came walking into Beverly's office and says, I knew Ava Gardner. Of course he did. <laughs> he knew said, Of course he did. <laughs> he knew everybody. He was so distinguished and kind. I mean, I remember as an intern being sitting in in a meeting and all of a sudden him turning to me and wanting to know my opinion and I was like, you want my opinion? Like he, <laughs> you know, I was just sitting there quietly and and he I just had so much I I loved that I knew him and got to work with him and and just the other the other thing I I got to do with him was I told Beverly this sit in his office and help him go through his mail. Oh, jeez. And that was like <laughs> that was like an all-day activity because... Did you get to clean it? No, because he would tell stories. But, I mean, what a, I, I'm honored that I had that experience. Well, he, Michael believed in young people. He really did. And he gave young lots of young people, yourself, chefs, anybody in the industry. He encouraged people to do things. The number of people in this business who are very successful now, who were encouraged to take the next step by Michael and through the magazine, are are countless. And they're out there. I won't mention their names. Well, but he discovered Tony Bourdain, it, which it, is Bourdain remarkable. And on and on and on. You know, the cover of Tony's book, A Kitchen Confidential, where he's standing there mm-hmm. with the sword, that photo first appeared in Food Arts. Because it was a story that we sent him on to do. He was opening up a lezal in Tokyo, or in Japan. In Tokyo. And so we sent him, he was going over there with his team to open the restaurant. And we had him do a story what it was like to open up a restaurant in Japan. So he came back, we took that photo, we sent our photographer to lezal and took that picture of him with the sword. It happens to be Michael Batterberry's sword. And when he wrote the book, he liked the story so much, he said, I'd like to get that photo for the cover of my book. So if you want to see the original story, you have to go back in food arts and find the story that Tony wrote, wrote way back when. Uh, and Good that, to know. Yeah. yeah, well, Tony actually said that Michael was the first person who really treated him with respect as a writer. So that was very important for the launch of his career. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, what year was Food Arts founded? 1989. 89. 88 or 89. 89. I think there was one issue in 88. One issue in 88, but really got off the ground in 89. Yeah, well, it's. uh, I want to talk more about about your roles with the magazine and and what you're doing now as well. So, but we're going to take a little break here, and so stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. And you're listening to The Crying Blues by the California Honey Drops. This is Heritage Radio Network.
Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guests today are Beverly Stephen and Jim Porras. We're talking about our beloved Food Arts magazine. We're talking about Michael Batterberry. And so what what were your exact roles with the magazine? I, Jim, you did the recipes working with chefs, right? I, I did, I don't know, I did a lot of the major features come up. I, came, I was kind of like, in many ways... Uh, I guess the idea man for a lot of the stories, they came up with a lot of the story ideas, worked with all the writers, found writers. I did the recipes. I did, you know, people sometimes would call me the food editor, but I was, I didn't really like that because I, while I did a lot of, a lot of the food, I also did all the, a lot of the major features. When I first got there, I, uh, uh, I did a lot of the writing which Beverly did before I got there, and then she started doing more manager things. But over time, I got away from writing to just strict editing and overseeing uh, the editorial, uh, you know, help, right. help the contents of the magazine. Right, and, and Beverly, you oversaw... Well, when, when I started as a senior editor, I was really writing the stories for the most part, and then... A couple of people left along the way. I became managing editor, which had a lot of management and administrative stuff. And the um, executive editor role had a lot of that, too. But I still did a fair amount of writing and reporting and assigning other people's stories. And, you know, I think we all worked together very closely. I mean, in many ways, we all did everything. Yes, we, right. we didn't have a food editor. Or, there was no defined roles. You know, I mean, you know, obviously... Kelly Kelly McLean, the managing editor, was really the inter as all managing editors is the interface between the advertising department, the editorial department, production, making sure we stayed on schedule, and and as well as editing various parts of the magazine. Uh, but I guess Beverly and I both mostly did a lot, most most of the hardcore editing and story assignment and story ideas. So. And, you know, then as time went on, we got involved in some outside events, which right. have become an increasingly important function for magazines to add to their mm-hmm. usually revenue-generating stream. Um, one of our most important ones was um, a thing called the Flavor Summit with the Culinary Institute. It was for hotel food and beverage executives worldwide. So Jim and I did the programming for that with the CIA. I actually attended the one that just happened because they carried on without us, and I did a couple panels with them. But when um, when I introduced myself and said that there was some hope that food arts might be coming back, this whole auditorium full of people burst into applause, of which was fabulous <laughs> and exciting and amazing. But, right. I mean, this was like 100 people who run the food for the world for people like Hyatt and Marriott and Mandarin Oriental and all those hotels, you know. So we have a good fan base. That's the point. I know, but you shouldn't be, I wouldn't think, you shouldn't be surprised by that because everyone I know wants to come back. (laughs) I think they do. We wanted to come. We wanted. (laughs) The Flavor Summit uh, grew out of something that we also did with the CIA called the Pastry Retreat. So the pastry retreat was an invitation-only event for the best pastry sh- chefs in the country. 
and and some and the world, and they would show up for three days and cook nothing but pastries and chocolates and pies and all sorts of confections. And the last day and was you, nothing. You know, Ariane endeared herself to them because you know she loves it. She said yeah. she had never been known to turn down a dessert. <laughs> <laughs> but we also participate every year. I would participate in the. Uh, the CIA's Worlds of Flavor Conference oh, as a, yeah. as a, a moderator and presenter. Uh, Beverly and I also did, uh, well, I changed names twice. Uh, it started off as SF Chefs, but now it's Eat Drink San Francisco. It's like their big food festival. And we ran a, a whole industry day uh, series of programs of panels and and demos. We did that for the last four years, as well as uh, I did a lot of stuff with the Research Chefs Association of America. They are the people who, you know, as they say, they work for the big food corporations who, you know, make ketchup shelf stable for the next millennium. Uh, and we also <clears throat> did, what else we did? We did... Um, that was kind of... Um Oh, I did with the Napa Valley Film. I worked with the Napa Valley Film Festival and doing a couple of days of food programming for them because one of the things that they do is uh, they want to uh, tie the film festival into Napa Valley food and wine things. So I took care of the the food part for Napa Valley Film Festival. So we were involved in a lot of things that kind of added to the added on to the magazine. Yeah, and and then you launched. Uh, your website as well. Well, yeah, we we did. We launched a website, and we also launched a weekly newsletter that uh, was designed basically to promote the website, but also carried advertising. But um, those things allowed us to do kind of more time-sensitive stories that were immediate. Right. And you worked with a lot of contributors in the magazine. I feel that I always was so impressed with your list of people who are writing stories. Did they? Did you find them, or did they come to you? Uh, both, both, both. A lot of times we would go to them, and you know, it was um, it was an honor to work with these people. We we had a roster of probably some of the best journalists. I wouldn't even say food journalists, just journalists who wrote for Food Arts. And uh, anybody can go back online. The website is still active in certain terms of you can get material off it. It's not actively being, lo- nothing is being added to it, but you can read the names and the bylines of the people who uh, who contributed to us. And we're right now, right, we're up for an IACP award. Uh, I guess that's happening next week, one of our stories. Carolyn Young was our last cover story. Uh, it was about uh, the man who, in, who uh, discovered and I guess basically invented sugar snap peas. And now he's still working as a plant uh, breeder uh, and a, a pea breeder, mostly peas, and developing different kinds of sugar snap peas and snow peas, which are being used, starting to be used by chefs all over the country. Wiley Dufresne uh, had a whole menu of his peas, and now there are a couple of three-star Michelin chefs in San Francisco who are planting his peas in in the Bay Area. So his peas, while his sugar snap pea is universal because he's the one who came up with it. His other peas are going to, about to take over the uh, the restaurant world. Here's so, the peas. So he was our cover story, and this, that story is up for a major award, yeah, a Burt Green wonderful. Award. And we hope she wins. Yes. <laughs> and, she's great. Right. 
And just so people know, the website's foodarts.com? Right. Yes. Okay. Just wanted to make sure I got that out there. So you can go on there and, you know, it's still loaded with lots of good stories. Lots well, of good stories. Well, it's an archive, basically. Yeah, it's, right. Great. Okay, let me ask the question I had from last week. I had on Stephen Zagor. He's the Dean of the School of Business Management and Studies at the Institute of Culinary Education. And he wanted to know what do you think of the future of magazines? How difficult is it to compete in the arena of publications? And to add on, how do you market yourself for a particular group of people? Mm. You know, nobody really knows the answer to this. I mean, it's obvious that advertising has been down for the print media. We've seen newspapers close. We've seen some magazines close. But if you go into Barnes & Noble, there's rows and rows of magazines. So, you know, it's, it's really hard to tell. I mean, we really hope for the sake of journalism that all of print does not disappear. Well, that question, I think, always gets raised in the past few years of, is print dead? I don't know. They kind of bring that up, and then it kind of disappears, and then it comes back again as a topic. Well, I don't know if it is. There have been a few magazines that have switched entirely online. I just found out yeah. that 7 by 7 magazine out of San Francisco, which is one of their big city magazines, kind of like the New York magazine in San Francisco, is seized uh, print operations and is now totally online but it's and women's wear daily is going totally women's online wear daily now, so. yeah of course yeah. i mean one of the things that made us sad about the you know other than just losing our jobs is the kind of journalism we did at food arts it was kind of long-form journalism that we wrote stories and long stories i mean we we went deep into the subject uh over and beyond what even many magazines do so we were you know there are lots of magazines that write long stories still the new yorker atlantic monthly uh, on and on and on but that that's that's might be those that kind of journalism might ultimately be the victim of the digital age where you're writing two to four thousand word stories and we did that at food arts and the other thing is that we also didn't have a house style and this this was something that Michael was very insistent upon, and we followed through, which is a great idea. The the writers wrote the way they want to write. Obviously, we edited, and sometimes very heavily, but we didn't edit to a house style. We kept their, their voice, voice. Yeah. and their voice came through. And so that was something that we were very happy with, and the writers were very happy with, with food arts. And I think it's one of the things that made writers want to write for food arts because they didn't get lost in the shuffle of editing that they could shine through. Yeah, they didn't get totally rewritten like right. they do for some places. Right. So um, I think they appreciated that, right. I really do. Yeah, I'm sure. So as of now, you guys are doing some freelance work or What's going on? Are you doing radio shows in your spare time? Doing radio shows, <laughs> um, uh, hoping to do more freelance. It's it's difficult to go out and develop outlets when you haven't been on that side of the business. I'm working on that. Right, right. But yeah, you know, it's still a, it's still hard not to walk down the street or go into a restaurant or talk to people and not see stories. There are stories everywhere, and that's what's still amazing. And that's that's what we still want to do. Is we want to. All these stories we see out there, they just kind of appear. It's like, whoa. And we need a place to put them. We need a place to put them. I'm behind you. So um, 
I, and I, I feel, I feel there's going to be a comeback. That's that as my my tip, my gut, my gut is telling me good. there's going to be a comeback. So how about that? <laughs> That's good. Okay, so we're going to take another break here. We're going to come back and do my speed round game and talk some industry news. It's all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. The following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. We're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guests are Beverly Stephen and Jim Porras. It is time for my speed round game. So Beverly and Jim, what this is, I'm going to name two things like chocolate or vanilla, and you just pick your preference. You're looking at me. Do you get it? Okay. It's simple. It's so simple. I say chocolate. Right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cho- it's what you what you your preference. So chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Vanilla. There we go. And chocolate. Good start. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Combo. Eat in or eat out. Eat out. Eat in. Wine, beer, or cocktail. Wine. All three. <laughs> Tasting menu or a la carte. A la carte. Tasting. You sure you guys work together? You got along? <laughs> Small plates or large plates? I don't know. Regular plates. Regular <laughs> plates. I like it. All plates. <laughs> Perfect. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? All-inclusive would be a great idea, actually. Yes. Seems so, so sort of going that direction. Okay, communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Uh, chef's counter. Writing or editing? Writing. Editing. Print or online publications? Print. Print. That was a given. <laughs> okay, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Wow. Both. Both. Manhattan or Brooklyn? As a cocktail or a drink? <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't be the, the, you're not the first to, to answer that way. It could be a cocktail. There is a Williamsburg cocktail, you know, that's like a Manhattan. At, at oh, there is? Cow and Clover restaurant. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, a, it's like a Manhattan, but they call it the Williamsburg. Oh, how funny. funny. I was talking more about the boroughs. I but... <laughs> Can I say San Francisco? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> An outer borough. <laughs> All right, cool. That was the game. Now, industry news. So yesterday, James Beard Foundation announced its nominees for the 2015 awards, both the Journalism Awards and the Restaurant Awards. Um, 
the journalism awards are still going to be in New York City, and then they're moving the restaurant ones to Chicago this year. Um, are you guys planning to go? I don't think so because nobody's going to be paying for us. Yeah, I don't. I I'm kind of I. I'm on the fence right now. I'm not going, but I've kind of, I've always gone since it's right, been in New York, right. and I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling that desire just to be there because I like being a part of it. Well, so do we. Yeah. So, well, so it was interesting. So I picked out a few of these categories in the restaurants. I don't know whatever. You, if you want to talk about journalism stuff, we can. But in the restaurants, there was um, best new restaurant where. There were seven listed. Two were from New York, Batard and Cosme. And um, Batard has gotten tons of accolades this year, which is amazing. It's both, very good. Both of those restaurants, by the way, appeared in food arts. Early on. Early on. Cosme, we had a huge feature on Enrique uh, about six or seven months before he opened the restaurant. And then I uh, worked with Marcus on menu preview on on our last issue. So if you look at September issue as well, uh, what's on Batard, so fall winter menu was in food arts in September. Okay, very I mean that's that's impressive. Another guy on this list of best new restaurant is Spoon and Stable in Minneapolis and that's Gavin um, Kaysen, who used to work for Danielle at Cafe right. Baloo. Right. Mm-hmm. And he, he moved home last year. He opened this place and has been nominated. And he's such a nice guy. I'm excited for him. I mean, I always have a hard time with these lists, like picking a winner, because I think they're all very deserving. It's, it is hard. Yes. Um, another one that I thought was interesting, so in the Rising Star Chef of the Year category, there were six people, and there was no one from New York City, and there usually is. So that was kind of, I thought, I don't know. I mean, I didn't know some of the, the, these Well, I, I think one of the interesting things, that you, what your remark is saying, there's no one from New York City, and there are only two restaurants in New York City in a category that New York City may have dominated in the past. It just goes to show how widespread, and what I keep saying is decentralized, good food has become and so untethered it's become from the major what were the major food centers of this country new york chicago san francisco los angeles and now it's all over the country and not just in major cities in this country it's out in the countryside it's in i guess what you would call secondary cities, the cities, you know, where Southwest Airlines goes, you know, you can find good food everywhere now. And that was, that wasn't the case 15 years ago, maybe not even 10 years ago. And I can give you examples which are legion and they're happening all over the place. So that's what that list reflects is that no longer do you have to be in New York or San Francisco to find something really worthy of being nominated or a place to go eat some really good food. You're, you're absolutely right. I have noticed that, and that is the rising star chef category. But just as another point, though, on the outstanding restaurant category, four out of five are from New York. That list is based on... <laughs> that list is usually based on uh, longevity. And there, there are criteria for that list. You have to be in business for a certain amount of years. Yeah, but and this list, I just have to point out, is so 
it's such a high low mix of amazing restaurants but you have blue hill stone barns momofuku per se the spotted pig and the one outside new york is highlands bar and grill in alabama but spotted pig to per se is just it's like black and white i mean they're both great restaurants but they're just they're very different styles Mm -hmm. any 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 comments on this you'll just wait to see who wins (laughs) <laughs> okay. We'll all be waiting to see who wins. Yes, yes, we are. We will. Okay, so another another news this week I thought was interesting and I was surprised to read was that Tony May oh. from SD26 and then formerly San Domenico. We, we got to just is, say, uh, we retiring. love Tony yeah. We all May. love Tony. We yeah. love Tony May. You know, he's, he's great. Yeah, he's great. He's been in, in the restaurant uh game, I guess you'd say, for a very long time. Well, he was also very concerned with elevating the quality of Italian food in the United States, and I think he did a lot of work toward that end. So, yeah, I guess he's ready to retire. Well, you know, he wants to retire. I said he was 77 and that he's selling the restaurant to John Doherty, who's the former executive chef at the Waldorf Astoria. But then later in the article, it said basically they're going to like close it out next year. And I was wondering what's What's happened to Marissa? Because it said she was getting married, moving to Rome. Yeah, she recently did get married. Right. And, so, right. but when I was reading, I was like, "But because they were, I know she was partners with Tony right, at, right. at SD twenty six, but she's that's that's exciting for well, her. I guess if she's going to Rome, she can't exactly have a restaurant in New York. So. One one of <laughs> yeah. the first things I did for food arts, I think the very very first week I was there, um, an Italian chef from Bergamo came over, and Tony had sent some young chefs to work at his restaurant in Bergamo. I forget the fellow's name. But he was cooking at Tony had a restaurant, small restaurant up in Westchester. And he would come over and he was cooking a a dinner at his restaurant in Westchester. So I went up there and uh, and on the way back I shared a car with Tony coming back, and so to sit in the back and listen to Tony for the kind of new to the food world uh, editor was mm-hmm. just was just fascinating. By the way, this this chef that was in Bergamo was like the mentor of Mark Fetri, among uh-huh. others, who Tony Tony had sent over there. So uh, so that's just one of many things that Tony did. He also did the what the Gruppo Italiano, where he they took chefs and restaurateurs around to various Italian cities. They would pick a city and go with a groupie. What was it called? That Italian group that he had? And they would go and spend like four or five days in just one city and explore the culinary history, the history, and the restaurants and the food and the food producers and the whole, the wines, the whole thing. And it was a very intensive thing. I never did one of them, but Tony was very serious about the having true, authentic Italian food. And that's a voice that's going to be missed. Absolutely. Yep. He was terrific. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But good for him. It said he's, he's going to Morocco. He's gonna, yeah, he's no, I think, you know, there comes a time where it's time to... to to chill out. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, and I'm happy for Marissa. Right. Sweetheart. Okay, the, just briefly, I'll mention New York Times today reviewed Little Park, which is Andrew Carmelini's latest restaurant, and it's in Tribeca, and Pete Wells gave it two stars. 
I did one of my solo dining experiences there. I liked it. I'm a fan of his. Have mm-hmm. you guys been? No, I have been. Actually, I liked it, too. I haven't been. You got to go. Okay. I, I, I mean, I think he focuses a little more on vegetables and small plates. I guess it's not going to be. Well, they I love your answer the... about regular plates, though. Well, the thing about small <laughs> plates, I think it's very deceptive. I mean, you start ordering these small plates, and before you know it, you've got a really large bill. Yeah. Well, that's one thing. Sometimes in all small plates is if you're just dining with one other person, they'll put three of an item on a plate. So who gets the third shrimp, so who gets right? the third one? And a lot of these things are kind of hard to divide in two because right. they could be messy. So why not two things on a plate or four things on a plate? Yeah. Well, as a solo diner, though, small plates are awesome. Right. Because then I can try more things if I'm by myself. Right. right. But, yeah, that's a very good point. Okay, we're going to take one more break. We're going to come back. I'm going to do my solo dining experience. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Back to all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience of the week. This week, I did, went to Dan Barber's Wasted Pop-Up Restaurant. Here's the rundown. The location, Blue Hill, 75 Washington Place in New York City. The concept, a temporary pop-up devoted to the theme of food waste and reuse. The chef and owner, Dan Barber, plus rotating guest chefs. Why did I go? because Chef Barber is very well-respected and thinks out of the box, and this two-and-a-half-week pop-up sounded very interesting. My experience. I had a reservation at 8 o'clock on Sunday, and when I arrived, the restaurant was full with a lively atmosphere. The hostess asked me how I heard of the concept as I was getting seated, and I told her I worked in the industry and I was planning to talk about this on my solo dining experience. As I studied the menu... Soon a complimentary drink was sent my way, a very nice gesture, unexpected from the restaurant, and I guess a perk of being a radio host. So thank you, Blue Hill. At my place setting, there was a menu and a pencil that I could take notes on if I wanted. Not only did the menu offer detailed descriptions of the dishes, but it had a wasted glossary, noting items being used, such as chickpea water, cucumber butts, Dry-aged beef ends. My server was also helpful in explaining the dishes, and at one point she brought out an iPad to show me photos of where the food comes from. Now, what did I get? Well, to start, the house bread, which was served with beef tallow in a candle as at the spread. Very cool stuff. It was hard to decide what to get, but I went with four dishes, as they recommended four was the right number. So I tried the fried skate wing cartilage, 
dumpster dive vegetable salad, fish color of the day, and guest chef Enrique Alvarez wasted special of purslin stems, cactus, corn husk, smoked beans, and green tomato salsa. My take. Everything was delicious, unique, and flavorful. My favorite dish was the fish collar, which was cod, and it was so hearty and delicious, I found it very hard to believe that this fish goes to waste. The scene, foodies. Perfect for adventurous eaters who care about the food world. Interesting tidbit, Wasted collaborated with local farmers, fishermen, distributors, restaurants, and more, reconceiving, quote-unquote, waste that occurs at every link in the food chain. It also worked with Formless Finder to reimagine the design and feel of Blue Hill. Personal fun fact, I ran into several industry friends who all seemed to love the place as well. The cost, every dish on the menu was $15, so I had four dishes, a total of 60, not including tax and tip. Would I go back? For sure. I'd love to try more things and get wasted. Website is wastedny.com. And now I think this pop-up ends uh, March 31st, and they've been taking walk-ins after 9 o'clock. Have you guys been to Wasted? I haven't been, but I would like to go. You should. Yeah. If you, I would suggest going. I mean, it was so interesting. I'm tempted to go back again because so many of the dishes were I didn't know what to order because it was about 20 dishes and they all sounded interesting and I've heard they were all great. You know, it's a great, very imaginative way to illustrate the problem that there's a lot of food waste. Yes. Well, and that's as things out of the box for sure. But this, I've had fish collar before at a Japanese restaurant. And I mean, this, this portion of fish I had was so delicious and it was it was. I was so full after there was, was so cod, much meat was on cod, it. Was cod. It was cod. Mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah. yeah. So fish collar is great. Fish yeah. head is great because they're like little bits behind the cheek and behind had, the ear. I had fish, which head are once. fantastic. Yes, at Bar Sardine, which is now or no, it's not Shea Sardine, which Shea is Sardine. now Bar Sardine. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, anyways, that was wasted. It is time for the final question. So, next week, I'm having on Alice Chang. She's the of Culinary Agents. And I want to see if you can ask them a, her a question. Well, one of my questions was, I, I find that when, when I or anybody I know have applied for any kind of job on the Internet, it just goes into a black hole. You never hear back from them one way or the other. And I was curious whether she had any format for acknowledging the people who are job seekers. I will find out. What about you, Jim? Anything? That's, that's the good question. That's the good question. That's, we'll just go with you one. can't top that one. <laughs> I can't top Beverly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This was so much fun. Well, I'm glad you guys came out here. I look forward to hearing what, what happens in the future good things. I've been talking to Beverly, Stephen, and Jim Force, formerly of Food Arts Magazine. Beverly is on Twitter at Beverly Stephen. I don't think Jim tweets. Gotta get you to tweet. I tweet at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry, and at Heritage Radio, at Heritage underscore Radio. You can also follow that to hear what's happening on all of our programs. My Facebook page is On the Industry, and my website's BayerPublicRelations.com. All of our shows are archived on heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on Stitcher and iTunes. Thanks to my guests, Beverly and Jim. Thanks to my engineer, Jack, and everyone out there listening. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next Wednesday at 4 for another live show. Thanks for being part of All in the Industry. Bye.
Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Stop.